0: This is EM Pulse with your hosts, Sarah Medeiros and Julia Magana. Episode 8,
1: Don't Be a Jerk.
2: Welcome back to EM Pulse. June was Pride Month, and in honor of that, we published a heartbeat on what it's like to be an LGBTQI emergency physician. That started a conversation that we'd like to continue today. Namely, what is it like to be a transgender patient in the ED, and what do we need to know as their physicians and providers? So this
3: is a bit of an adult episode. We talk about sexual health and gender, and the words that we use to describe these terms are very adult words. They're anatomically appropriate terms. So Issa, if you're listening, son, turn off the podcast. Sexual identity is very complicated. It's intensely personal. And there are a lot of things that I do as an ED physician and as a child abuse advocate that are complicated and intensely personal like this. But this feels a little bit different for me. There are so, so many different aspects, and I'm so afraid to get it wrong. There's gender identity, how you see yourself, gender expression, how you express yourself, how you show yourself to the rest of the world.
2: And of course, biological sex, the sex you were born with and also who you are sexually attracted to and who you are romantically attracted to. And these can all be thought of as a spectrum and not binary either or kind of things.
3: You know, Sarah, as I talk to medical students now, they have all been taught to view identity and gender as the complex spectrum that you're talking about. This is not new to them. But to a lot of providers out there, and even to those of us who have been taught on some level, there's still a lot of uncertainty about how to approach trans patients. Sarah, I've noticed that we like to tackle topics that are complicated and involve the historically marginalized, so I feel like this is right down our alley.
2: Yeah, definitely. And we know there's a level of mistrust of medical professionals within the trans community, and rightly so. This is intensely personal, like you said, and there have been decades or centuries, really, of misunderstanding between the two communities and mistreatment of trans people. So if you've ever felt a trans patient seem defensive, there may be
3: several good reasons why. This is likely going to elicit some emotional response in you as you listen. That's okay. It did in me as well. We want these stories to motivate you to look at your own views, prejudices, understandings of gender, and then look at your own practice as well. We want to all serve our patients with compassion and equality.
2: Today, I'm here with JM Jaffe, who is the trans health manager at the Lion Martin Clinic in San Francisco. So, JM, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you identify?
4: Sure. So I am a non-binary transmasculine person, which means that I was assigned female at birth and I don't identify as either a woman or a man, but I've been on hormone therapy on testosterone for about eight years. So to the world, I am often perceived as male. I pass as a cisgender man and I've had uh, top surgery. So I've had a mastectomy. So yeah, I identify along the masculine spectrum of gender when you think about the um, spectrum of identities that can exist between woman and man, but I don't identify as either uh, defined categories.
2: So talk to us a little bit about pronouns and why they are so important.
4: Sure. So growing up as a female assigned a birth person, I, you know, was seen as a girl And people use she and her pronouns for me my whole life until I started transitioning. So I changed my name from Jill to JM and started using they and them pronouns, which are gender neutral alternative pronouns to she or he. And so, you know, for people that know me well and know the trans community well, I asked them to use they and them pronouns for me because I am non-binary. But, you know, when I'm just interacting with the world and going to the corner store, it's totally fine for people to use he and him for me because that's what they perceive me as. I'm not going to, like, start a whole conversation about gender and they and them pronouns with the guy at the corner store. (laughs) Right. Uh, Mostly for convenience, but also for safety's sake. You know, you never know um, what someone's going to think when you out yourself as a trans person.
2: Yeah, and let's dive into that a little bit more in terms of your experience as a patient. So have you ever been a patient in the emergency room, and what was that like?
4: Yeah, and, you know, I've had some good experiences and some not-so-great experiences. Um, the one that I am prepared to talk about today was particularly horrible. From front desk until discharge, this entire uh, ER experience was was pretty traumatic, but it definitely illustrates the different unintentional mistakes that I think many healthcare providers make when they are interacting with trans people. So I'm happy to to tell that story. So as a transmasculine person, I am attracted to people of, that are also trans, and I'm also attracted to people who are uh, cisgender women. The person that I happened to date at the time of this ED experience was a transgender man who was also a sex worker. We were also polyamorous, which means that we were dating many other people. So I uh, woke up one day with a very high fever of like 103, 104, and I had a puddle of vaginal discharge underneath me. I was also vomiting. So I show up at the ER and I was told to wait. And so I was waiting and I was, you know, vomiting periodically in the Mm. ER waiting room. And, you know, a lot of time passed and many people had come in after me and were being checked in. And I went up to the front desk and I realized that they didn't realize who I was because I hadn't changed my name legally. Changing your name legally is a very... Expensive and arduous process, so I hadn't done that yet. My name was still Jill in their system, and I've been on testosterone for eight years, so I have a beard <laughs> and um, I look and am perceived as male. And they thought that I had left. So when my name came up to be seen, they looked around the room and didn't see anyone who looked like a Jill. And so I waited longer after that, and finally I did get roomed, but it ended up being about a five-hour wait. The person who roomed me realized that I was transgender and asked me some questions about my symptoms, which were totally appropriate. And then they asked me if I had had surgery. And I told them, well, it's kind of irrelevant, but yes, I've had top surgery. And they were like, oh, my God, you're so brave. That's, that's <laughs> an amazing thing that you did, which I understand was like a nice thought, But, you know, as a trans person, like when you get surgery, it's it's not because you're like brave or anything like that. It's just just something you have to do. And then they were asking me like, oh, what's it like being a trans person? What's it like being on hormone therapy? And, you know, I was really sick and I just wanted to get this over with. And I felt like these questions weren't really relevant to my care. After I was uh, roomed, the doctor finally came in and he asked me if I had had sex recently, given my symptoms, and I said yes. And I told him that my partner is a transgender man who's a sex worker, and we were also poly, so he was also probably having sex with other people besides clients. And the doctor asked again if he was a man And I was like, yes, he's a transgender man. Um, And then the doctor was like, well, does he have a penis? And I was like, well, he considers the genitals he has to be a penis, but it's probably not the penis that you're thinking of. And I explained, you know, that um, my partner was female assigned at birth and hadn't had any genital surgeries. Then the doctor was like, oh, so he's a woman and i was like no but i understand what you're getting at so yes he does not have a penis that you're thinking of then you know we started talking about receptive penetrative sex and he was like so you're not having you know that kind of sex and i was like that's correct not not in the way that you're thinking about it but we did have genital to genital contact but he determined that i i was not at risk for an sti based on that. The doctor then determined that I needed to have a CT scan given my abdominal pain and a vaginal exam. He then sent me off to get a CT. And once that was done, he told me to go home because I wasn't at risk for an STI. So I went home. And in the morning, the attending of the ED called me with my results and told me that I had pelvic inflammatory disease, that i probably did have an STI that had worsened and caused fluid to build up in my reproductive tract. And he told me to immediately go back to the to the ED for treatment. And I just refused. I was like, I'm not going to the ED. I appreciate that you are making this diagnosis finally, but there's no way I'm going back to that ER. It's absolutely too traumatizing at this point. So yeah, I did end up getting in with my gynecologist. I got the treatment I needed. But from then on out, I've avoided the ED at all costs. And I imagine that a lot of trans people um, have had similar traumatizing experiences. And the result is it really makes them avoid care.
2: What are some things that you think would make trans people feel more comfortable being in the ED?
4: So there are a few things that happened in that experience that really kind of highlight things that could could have gone differently. I mean, honestly, the most important thing that you can do for a trans person in healthcare is just call them by their name and pronoun. The next thing is just to avoid unnecessary and irrelevant questions that are really just, the only purpose is satisfying curiosity. I know that this happens not in an intentionally malicious way because people are often just trying to connect with the person and... Um, ask about their life. But you have to recognize that trans people are asked inappropriate, invasive questions about their bodies literally all the time. And so getting that when you're trying to get help and get care in your most vulnerable state is not the time to do it. And granted, there are questions that you will have to ask that are sensitive in the healthcare setting. But I think the important thing to remember is to give context. Why you're asking the question, so people don't think that you're just asking to satisfy your curiosity. I think the biggest thing is just um, constantly asking and checking to see if people are comfortable. You just really have to tailor healthcare to that individual, and that's really the takeaway in trans health in general.
3: I am so impressed that JM was willing to share that intensely personal story. You know, patients like J.M. had been on testosterone for years, and we know that hormones change the cells, change the architecture of the body, and things like a vaginal exam, a speculum exam, can be exquisitely painful. We need to be aware of that and listen to what their bodies need. Yeah, this visit was
2: so painful physically and emotionally to J.M., that they refused to go back to the ED even with the diagnosis of PID. And since then, JM has avoided the ED, and many patients like JM continue to avoid our EDs.
3: Oh, man, that makes me so sad, Sarah. Next, we're going to talk with a few providers who help us navigate. They're going to give us some tools to make our emergency departments a safer place for patients like JM.
2: Julie and I are really excited to welcome Dr. Kara Tolls as our guest host today. Kara is an assistant professor of emergency medicine at UC Davis and also a clinical assistant professor at the University of Texas Medical Branch. So Kara, thanks so much for coming on today.
1: Absolutely. I'm excited.
2: And Kara, do you want to talk to us a little bit about who our
1: other special guest is today? Yes, absolutely. I'm very excited to introduce Ryan, Nick Gordon, He is an emergency medicine attending physician at Sutter Davis, and he is also uh, an attending physician of primary care at Lion Martin Clinic in San Francisco, which is a historic primary care clinic with a patient population that is about 50 to 60 percent transgender nonconforming gender queer.
3: All right, Nick and Kara, can you define some terms for us? What do we need to know as we approach this topic?
1: I'll take the easy one. So when people say LGBTQI. Yeah. That can be very confusing. So those letters stand for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, questioning, and intersex. Those are very different in and of themselves, but they kind of get grouped into this this uh, acronym.
0: One of the commonalities that everybody shares in that group is in some way they're often subject to discrimination because of that identity, mm-hmm. right? And which is kind of a sad thing to think about that that's... Yeah. That's why we have that acronym, but it, it's that's the one thing that we share in common.
3: Gotcha. Since we're going to focus on transgender today, Nick, can you define transgender for us?
0: So transgender is often described as an umbrella term, which basically means that if somebody says they're transgender, they're, they're transgender, right? But generally what you're talking about is people who, when they were born, they were assigned one sex, male or female, and then later on in life, we realize that that's not accurate, that their gender identity or their gender expression are something different from, not necessarily uh, just male or just female. There can be a spectrum, like you talked about the gender spectrum, between those two categories. When I talk about that, when I say gender identity, that's somebody's internal sense of themselves as male, female, androgynous, somewhere on that spectrum. Whereas gender expression is the things that you do to tell the world where you are in that spectrum, so the clothes you wear, the way you speak, the way you style your hair, all those sort of gendered presentations that we do.
2: And if I could ask you both, how do you identify and why is
1: self-definition so important? So I identify as a black or African-American queer woman. I think that self-identification is incredibly important. Folks who are in any marginalized status and Our society have been defined by others for a very long time, and that has led to a lot of discrimination and bias and unfair, sometimes even violent treatment toward specific groups. I think that allowing folks to self-identify gives them the power back.
0: And also, they're the ones who know what they are.
1: (laughs) Exactly.
0: I'm a gay transgender man, and so what that means is uh, I was assigned female at birth, and later on said, nope, that was the wrong assignment. And so I chose to undergo surgery and take hormones. Not every transgender person does that, but that was the right thing for me. And I identify as male now, and my partner is a man, so that's why I identify as gay. And that, that sometimes confuses people too. Honestly, the easiest way to figure all that out is to just ask the person you're talking to. That makes a lot of sense.
1: And I totally forgot to mention, but I am cisgender. One of the reasons that we're doing this podcast and talking about it is because when you are in a group that, that is not the marginalized group, it's so easy to just forget. Oh, yeah, I'm in this group that doesn't have to deal with people misgendering me and being violent toward me and all of these biases. So it was an honest mistake that I'm acknowledging and just putting out there.
3: And Kara, tell us what is cisgender?
1: So cisgender is in opposition to transgender. And so I was born into a body that was female at birth. And I identify as a woman. And so that is cis.
0: And similarly, I didn't have to identify as white, you know. And I'm guessing many of the listeners uh, made that assumption because I didn't say it.
3: Yeah, actually, that's a Probably really
0: interesting yeah. point.
2: So we've talked about the terms transgender and cisgender what about people who don't identify with either of those
0: the thing is no matter what group or what classification you come up with there are going to be some people who don't feel like they belong in that box right even people who i would look at and i would say well that person's transgender they might not identify that way right so the first thing is to understand that identity is a a very personal thing and so Given that, there are going to be a lot of transgender people who have a pronoun preference for he and him, for she and her, but there are some people who don't identify with either of those and prefer they or them, or ze or zeer. And so you have to be open-minded about this. There's a couple of drawings, the gender unicorn and the gender bread person, and they talk about those different aspects of so your gender identity, which is your sense of yourself as Male, female, somewhere in between, or somewhere not even on that spectrum. Your gender expression, your sex assigned at birth, and then also who you're attracted to sexually and romantically, right? Um, So your orientation. And they're great, but even those are, they're, they're not perfect descriptions of it. And so you ultimately have to ask the patient.
3: Okay, so Nick, let's start with your story. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and why transgender care is so important to you? Yeah, I get
0: asked that question not infrequently. Honestly, me being trans has nothing to do with my decision to provide trans care. And that sounds weird, but what happened was I didn't really know much about the transgender community until I transitioned. And I didn't know how profoundly medically marginalized the trans community is. And so it was my transition that opened my eyes up to this need and then seeing that need, I said, oh, we have to fill that. I think transgender people are one of the most medically marginalized people in the U.S. You know, And if you add being a person of color or being an immigrant to that, it's sort of this toxic intersection of, mm. of medical disenfranchisement. So, so many of the patients that I see, they haven't seen a doctor in 10 years. You know, And so it's seeing that need in the community that got me to do it. But, of course, I only saw the need in that community because I transitioned when I transitioned in you know, the early 2000s, this wasn't something that everybody was talking about.
1: So Nick, earlier this year in February, you published an article in the Annals of Emergency Medicine entitled, Improving the Quality of Emergency Care for Transgender Patients. Um, I want to say, I think it's an excellent resource. And you referenced some really important work uh, on the topic done by other folks, and so in this this editorial, you identify some some issues that transgender people face. Why do so many transgender people avoid coming to the emergency department and even fear it?
0: I think everybody, when they come to the ER, has a certain amount of fear or discomfort. Yeah. Even if it's just they're afraid of what they're coming there for. And so if you look at that question generally... And you say, why are people afraid? It's because they're in a position where they can't control things, right? They can't control the fact that they're sick. They're in pain. They can't control the provider who's going to see them. They're worried the provider who's going to see them is uh, not going to take their issues seriously. And so take that, but see that through the lens of somebody who is subject to a lot of discrimination generally in society, and it gets a lot worse. Transgender people, people of color are subject to a lot of discrimination in healthcare. Particularly unscheduled care with unknown providers is a big question mark for trans people. I've had patients come into my clinic with things that should have gone to the ER two days ago, but they couldn't get an appointment with us and they were not going to the ER, at which point I called an ambulance and said, you're going to the ER right now. Mm. It's this assumption that you're going to be treated badly. And that assumption is not always incorrect and i think that as er physicians is something that we have to do for everybody we need to make sure people feel comfortable going to the er or they're not going to show up and they're going to have a lot of or a lot more complications because of that
2: and when you talk about trans people being treated badly in the er are there some examples that you can share that might be specific to the trans community
0: there's a ton of examples And we all talk about it, (laughs) you know, and and, I mean, there's some famous ones like uh, Tyra Hunter in Washington, DC, who, I mean, her mistreatment started way before the ER. She was in a car accident and the EMTs who uh, responded when they cut all our clothes off, realized she was a transgender woman, started referring to her as an it and by a really foul racial epithet and then refused to treat her. And to the point that bystanders were saying, I get that you're upset about who this person is, but she's really sick. You need to take her to the hospital. And the supervisor actually had to call a different ambulance rig to transport her. So that was delayed. She gets to the ER and, you know, we talk about the the golden hour and the platinum 10 minutes. They blew that, right? And so she sat there, uh, didn't get fluid resuscitation until 30 or 40 minutes into it, despite the fact that she was hypotensive, tachycardic and had an altered mental status. They did a chest x-ray that, you know, the contemporaneous reading was uh, haziness on, on one lung and the heart was pushed the other direction, which that's a hemothorax and a trauma victim. And so they again did nothing. Then she coded, then they did an ED thoracotomy, which actually wasn't indicated because it wasn't penetrating trauma, but they did, and they found out the reason she died was exsanguination from a hemothorax.
1: That's heartbreaking.
0: Because of the discrimination she received pre hospital and I I wasn't there. I can't say what happened, but I can say that that was very substandard care, and it was provided at a major trauma center that you expect to do better than that. Oh, absolutely. I would expect a doctor at a tiny community hospital to do better than that. Yeah. Um, And you have to ask yourself, why was it that that didn't happen? Mm Mm-hmm.
3: Nick, are there any social or health outcomes that transgender patients are at a higher risk for, such as interpersonal violence or homelessness?
0: All of the above. So if you look at the social determinants of health, transgender people are disenfranchised in almost every category. So more likely to be unemployed, more likely to be homeless, more likely to be HIV positive, uh, especially trans women, especially trans women of color, and especially trans women who live in large cities, Mm. upwards of in some studies, 50% HIV positivity rate. And, you know, because transgender people, especially trans women, uh, find it difficult to get employment, if you have to eat and you have to have a place to sleep, sometimes you have to resort to street economies. So sex work, narcotic sales, if that's the only job that you can get, that's what you have to do to survive. And so those two things subject trans people to a great deal of risk. The other thing, too, some transgender women will inject silicone. They literally inject free silicone and not medical-grade silicone. I'm talking Mm. the stuff you get at Home Depot.
3: Oh, my goodness.
0: And do their own mammoplasty or inject it into their hips, and, and that has a lot of negative consequences.
1: I think an important point to make is to make sure that folks understand that the fact that this group of folks disproportionately experiences these health disparities is not inherent to who they are. It is a reflection of what the society and the biases that we all hold have done to a group of people. So I think that's a really important point to make.
3: I love that, Kara. Thank you for pointing that out.
2: One of the big issues for me, I know this is, there were definitely gaps in my medical education in terms of really all LGBTQI care care definitely transgender care. And I think this came out in a couple of the papers that you referenced as well, that although most emergency physicians routinely take care of transgender patients, our knowledge of these patients and their particular specific concerns is very limited. We don't know about the common medications they might be taking or the common surgical procedures they may have had. This is really unfamiliar to us. And I think it makes us uncomfortable as ER physicians. So maybe you can talk a little bit more about that.
0: One thing to remember is you actually do know about this, right? Because you know that people take estrogen and spironolactone and testosterone and and you know those drugs and you know those drugs sometimes have side effects. So for example, trans women take relatively high dose estrogen. And so what do you think might be a common medical problem they have? DVTs and pulmonary emboli. So you kind of know that, right? It's just a matter of taking the knowledge you have and applying it in a different way. If people get, you know, a wound infection, you know how to treat that. If people have a wound dehiscence, you know how to treat that. You know, if a transgender person has had genital surgery and they come in with a urinary obstruction, okay, I probably wouldn't try to pass a Foley catheter through a freshly made neophallus, but you can call a GU doc or you can do yourself a suprapubic catheter if you know how to do that. So there's a lot of stuff you do know. Um, The few things that you don't know, you can look up. It used to be the case that knowledge about this was in this tiny little corner of medical texts and wasn't available. You Google this, you go to up to date. there's, There's all kinds of information about this. So it is stuff you know about. It's just the context that's different.
1: So Nick, we've talked a bit about the issues that trans folks experience in the emergency department. And we've brought up some really important things about what ED physicians and healthcare workers can do. But can you kind of wrap it up for us and give us some very specific takeaways from our discussion today about what, how we can better serve our transgender patients in the emergency department, clinic, whatever healthcare facility you may be working in?
0: So the most important thing is don't be a jerk. <laughs> and that's hard for some of us, <laughs> um, myself included, sometimes. <laughs> Treat people the way you'd want to be treated or the way you'd want your mother to be treated. And and for transgender people, there are a few little things that are different. Um, One is that names and pronouns are super important. I cannot emphasize this enough. Getting the name and pronoun correct is make or break for how well this care transaction is going to go, right? If you don't get that right, the patient is not going to be open about what's going on. They're not going to easily give you the answer and you're going to have to do a lot more work. So I would strongly encourage people to get that right. And the thing is, it may not always be apparent, right? So if I go into an ER, I don't think there's anybody who's going to look at me and use she as a pronoun. I, I just, that's just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. The thing is, though, not every transgender person looks obviously the gender that they're transitioning to. And so if you're not sure ask. Trust me, transgender people are used to this. But then once you find that out, it's your job to make sure that everybody else gets it right too. Because if you're doing the right thing, but the nurse is treating the patient or the registration clerk or the tech who's doing their EKG is not being appropriate, it reflects on you, right? So if you find it out, share it with everybody in an appropriate way, this isn't something to yammer about at the nurse's station, you take somebody aside and quietly tell them that, but communicate it to other providers because everybody wants to be set up for success. Nobody wants, I definitely don't want to accidentally use the wrong name or the wrong gender marker for somebody because that it's, it's painful to do that. It's painful to be patient, but I feel bad too. And if that happens, and it's going to happen because look, I'm a transgender physician and I work at a historically LGBT clinic and treat a ton of transgender patients and I mess this up occasionally, right? If I can't get it right 100%, you're not going to get it right 100%. But if you make a mistake, say, "Oh my gosh, I'm sorry about that" and then just apologize and, and move forward and that's the best way to manage that if that does happen.
2: In your paper, you talk about some things that we can do at both an institutional level and a staff level. So getting the pronouns right, getting the preferred name, all of that is sort of at the staff level within the emergency department. What other kinds of things can we do?
0: Gender identity and gender expression should be in every hospital and every healthcare facility's non-discrimination language. And it sounds like that's a small thing. And, and a lot of people would say, well, gee, my hospital's my hospital's really progressive. Um, the hospital that I work at in Davis, California, very progressive, okay? I'm not even the only transgender provider that works there, right? But that wasn't in our bylaws. That wasn't in the hospital policy. And so adding that, it, it's important. You can also train staff, right? Anybody who's my age, which is late 40s or older, probably didn't get this in their medical training, right? I remember in medical school, we had one lecture about LGBT patients. And there was like the two minute thing about transgender people that (laughs) was, you know, that was the nineties. That's how we did it. But you can do staff training, you know, you can make this a part of continuing education. And then also the expectation that people are going to apply this training, right? So if you see somebody who's misgendering a patient, who's not using their correct name, again, don't do it in the nurse's station. You take that person aside and you say, that's not okay. And if that person pushes back, you go up the chain of command at your hospital.
3: Anything else emergency medicine providers should keep an eye out for?
0: So one of the things that does come up that's a little different for trans people is you might have somebody who looks like me who you need to worry about pregnancy in, right? And so you may have to ask questions about that. If somebody comes in with a GU complaint or lower abdominal pain, you may actually have to ask about their surgical status. And the single easiest way to start that conversation is to explain to the patient why you're asking that question, right? So let's say somebody comes in and they fell on their hip and you want to do a hip x-ray, but it's a transgender man and you know that. And so you need to know if there's a chance that he could be pregnant, right? So it seems logical that you'd say, well, if you had a hysterectomy, right? But from this guy's perspective, he fell riding a skateboard. He came in because his hip hurts and you're asking him about whether or not he's had what are considered gender reassignment surgeries. And so he doesn't know the very innocent uh, intention behind your question. So explain to people. Also, when you're asking questions in general about people's transgender medical history, do the same thing. So just being really sensitive about that, letting people know that ahead of time. The other thing, too, is transgender people may often have conflicting uh, insurance and identity documents. So you may have to write a prescription for somebody and they go by Jane Smith, but their insurance card says John Smith. And so the way I ask that question is, I'm writing a prescription and I want your insurance to cover it. What name would you like me to write on your prescription?
2: And I think on the flip side of what you said about the exam is not necessarily asking about gender status or things that are irrelevant. If someone comes in for strep throat, you don't need to ask them about their gender reassignment surgery.
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. The benefit of telling patients ahead of time why you're asking a question is you actually have to ask yourself that question first.
1: And I think walking into the room, allowing that person to tell their story and doing what we've been trained to do for any person who walks into the emergency department.
0: And that's the thing. When you go into a room, it's not about you. It's about the patient. And the thing is, once you get over that hump, and it took me a while to get over that hump, you realize it's just a lot easier. Honestly, you know, I can get in and out of the room so much faster if the only issues I have to take care of are the patient's issues and not mine.
2: Yeah, I think that's fantastic. And I encourage all of our listeners to read um, Nick's paper. We'll put a link to it. There's some wonderful take-home points and things
3: that you can really apply on your next shift. Thank you, Nick, for being here. I know I'm going to be a little more prepared for my next shift because of you.
0: Great. Thanks for having me. Pulse check.
3: Take home points for today. Don't be a jerk. Treat people the way that you would want your mother to be treated. Avoid unnecessary questions. Give the context when you're asking the questions. And ask how your patient wants to be addressed. What pronouns do they prefer? This sets the foundation for the rest of the visit and pass that on to other providers so that they know how your patient wants to be addressed. And guess what? When treating transgender patients, use the medical principles that you already know. You know the side effects of hormones. You know post-op care. You know wound care. This is just all the same principles in a slightly different context. Nick breaks down addressing gaps in transgender care into institutional and staff levels. On an institutional level, how can we address these gaps?
2: Yeah, and I think one of the big things that Nick mentions is making sure that your institutional non-discrimination policy mentions gender
1: identity and expression. This is really cool and something that I, uh, that I was working on as a medical student uh, on this uh, LGBTQI task force is that uh, UC Davis is the first academic health system in the country to include sexual orientation and gender identity in the electronic health record.
2: And I think leadership really plays a crucial role here.
1: Yes. Nate Cooperman does a great job of setting the tone and creating this culture of inclusivity and celebration of diversity, which actually drew me back to Davis.
3: I don't identify as LGBTQI, but what can I do on a personal level? On a staff level, what can we do? So a lot of people who aren't in
1: those marginalized groups can sometimes say, well, where do I fit in? You totally fit in as being an, an ally that can be an incredibly powerful role for you. Something that may seem small, but I think is kind of cool, is that we have these little rainbow stickers that we place on our badges to show patients that we are accepting of them in whatever way they want to be and identify.
3: Yeah, I think another big thing is staff education. And that doesn't always work. We had a diversity training a few years ago, and I think it is fair to say that it was less than ideal. Yeah, let's
2: be honest, it was pretty bad. (laughs) (laughs) And I think those things don't always work. It is so hard to expect to have a paradigm shift on such a complex issue in two hours.
3: Yeah, while it was not successful, it was another step in the march towards inclusivity and understanding that we as a department are trying to embrace. I think we should purposefully integrate this topic into our education, either with departmental talks, maybe hopefully a little more successfully, or bringing in patients to tell their own stories, reading articles like Nick's, or even asking our own transgender patients about their experiences and how we can help improve. I, I think we always have room to grow, but I'm excited to be growing with all of you guys and learning how we can be better ourselves. We can all advocate for our vulnerable, our marginalized patients, even in small ways.
2: Wow, this was definitely a big learning episode for me. And our conversation doesn't stop there. We have another heartbeat coming, discussing the complications of silicone injections with Nick. And as always, we want to hear from you. How does what you heard today change your practice? Join the conversation on social media at Podcast.
3: And another way that you can get plugged in is by going to ucdavisem.com and signing up to receive email notifications when a new podcast is published. Even if you don't go onto your podcast app every day, this will send you an email when we have our twice-monthly podcasts. Also, we have another way to continue the conversation. We are going to be meeting in Hawaii, in Maui, on November 6th through 10 at Emergency Medicine Hot Topics 2018 by UC Davis. I'm going to be there, and I would love to see any of you guys there as well. Thanks to our department, you guys inspire us. And to OM Audio Productions, without you, we'd just be two girls in a closet with a mic.